Hello and welcome to another podcast episode of my weekly Substack newsletter, Recasting Religious Trauma. I am your host, Christine Greenwald, a mental health therapist and writer based in rural Ohio. Today I'll be interviewing my guest, Nikki Pappas. Nikki Pappas is a writer and author who critiques the evangelical establishment that shaped her. In September 2022, she published her first memoir titled As Familiar as Family, Leaving the Toxic Religion I Was Groomed For which broke into the top 100 on Amazon in the category Abusive Family Relationships. In October 2022, she published her first poetry collection called Reflections from a Former Evangelical, which was the number one new release in religious and inspirational poetry on Amazon. She is also the host of the Broadening the Narrative podcast, where she interviews guests who are broadening the narratives she was taught with in white evangelicalism. She has three young children with Stephen Pappas, her study partner in the chaos since 2010. And we'll be talking about her book that she wrote, As Familiar as Family, so I'll tell you a little background about that. In this book, she explores and examines the ways in which she was groomed for unhealthy relationships and toxic religion. She chronicles her journey to find her voice and a way out, which began once she understood how spiritual abuse, power dynamics, narcissism, and emotional detachment in the church she was part of were as familiar as family. By sharing her story, she hopes to empower others to leave anything toxic in their own lives. 100% of profits from as familiar as family are being donated to organizations that support survivors on their healing journeys. I hope you all enjoy our interview today. All right, Nikki, I am so happy to have you on my podcast today. Um, I read your book, As Familiar as Family, so that's kind of going to be a little bit of the groundwork of what we're talking about, Um, but really honing in on the issues of spiritual abuse um, and also some narcissism in the church, real light topics. Um, So, but first, before we, we jump into those, okay, heavier things, I was wondering if if anybody listens to On Being with Krista Tippett, she always starts out her interviews this way. Like, could you give us a little background of the spiritual or religious, um, you know, formation of your childhood? Yeah. So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and attendance was just the routine, right? What we did on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, and we were also there for all the special, quote, special occasions, right? Uh, revival, vacation Bible school. And I went to church with a lot of my extended family. My dad was one of eight kids. So a lot of them went to the same church, you know, my grandparents. And I'll just say, I know that this is common for a lot of people connected to Southern Baptist churches and denominations that have similar theologies. I just had this anxiety about hell and the rapture. Those are two of the biggest underlying causes of anxiety for me. And those two teachings in particular, and so I was getting saved, you know, I got saved a few times. And so, yeah. And also as a child, this is something that comes up in my book and that kind of is a recurring theme is this idea of being abused. Mm -hmm. And so as a child, this included sexual abuse on more than one occasion by the person that I was supposed to consider my grandfather. And so I look back on the first time it happened and I realized that he did all these nice things for me, like get me a puppy and give me money. Mm. And I was considered one of the quote favorites, right? And all of those things were meant to buy my silence as he groomed me for the abuse that was to come. And so he built this relationship of trust with me 
to then manipulate and exploit me once he'd earned my loyalty. And even as a child, right, I knew I wouldn't be believed. And he made sure that I would look ungrateful, like an ungrateful liar, if I ever dared to speak against him. And this pattern of trusting someone and giving them my loyalty and them grooming me kind of is a a recurring theme in my life, right? So I look back on all that and that both the religious formation of that time and the foundation I was getting and also the things happening that people didn't know about. And it's like, I couldn't articulate it back then as a child, but before that happened, I thought I'm autonomous. I can make decisions for myself. I have some level of agency, but when I was sexually abused, seeing how my body was violated and boundaries were crossed Mm -hmm. and how my agency was completely ignored as this person just who held all the power. Right. And he just took from me and I needed to just yield to him. And so I look back on that as the first time I can pinpoint this misbelief taking root in me, this misbelief burden that I am not autonomous like those with authority, particularly the men in my life. And plus, I still had to sit with this man every Sunday at church, right? Because I wanted to sit with my grandma. And so there we are on the front pew at church, you know, Sunday after Sunday. And then we would go to grandma's house for lunch afterwards, which she's still, she's 94 maybe and still hosts Sunday lunch at her house, cooks all the food. Like, I mean, and you know, my aunts and uncles cook as well. And my, my parents, but yeah. And there were more family members over time and more boys and men who violated me. And, even with the guys I dated though, I would sort of disconnect and disassociate during times of both coerced or consensual intimacy. But, you know, I thought I had to be in a relationship and I really derived my meaning and my value from whether or not I was desirable to the boys and the men around me. Right. And so along the way, I was staying involved in the same church throughout middle school and high school. And, you know, all that trauma I was carrying my body, in my body, it's like, I needed Jesus to be real for me at that time. I can look back and say like Jesus in a lot of ways was a coping mechanism, right? The whole faith, all of it was like, this is what helps me get through all of this trauma. And so then I graduated high school, went to a local college that was like a community college. And that's where I met Stephen, the man who would become my husband. So yeah, Stephen led this Bible study that I attended through Baptist collegiate ministry. So still in the Baptist world. He was the first person to teach me about complementarianism through the lessons that he shared, but he didn't call it that. You know, I didn't know that word yet, but, you know, he explained that husbands are supposed to love their wives using these verses from Ephesians 5 and that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. And when addressing the women in the room, we were told, like Stephen was saying, if a husband is sacrificially loving their wife in this manner as Christ loves his bride, then it isn't hard to submit to that type of love. And I bought all in, you know, I bought it. I was all in on that. And I say that the sexual abuse of my childhood really groomed me for this complementarian teaching because men like the man I was supposed to call my grandfather, right? They had been trusted authority figures. I was taught to respect them, submit to them. And so on the surface, people could look at the men and the boys who were doing things to me and think that they are a source of protection. But under the surface, I knew they are a source of harm in my life. And so implicit in this message that, you know, isn't Stephen's message, you know, it's a, it's a message parroted in those circles over and over again that really groom and and help these situations be ripe for abuse, right? Where implicit in that message is that if wives submit to their husbands, husbands will find it easier to love, protect, and provide for their wives. 
And it's like, no, that is a lie, right? But I clung to it because it seemed like a way to keep myself safe if I just follow the rules. Right now I can look back and be like, no, it's it's not accurate. But at the time I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. So last little bit here, meeting Stephen led me to this church that I named Entrench Church in my book. And it's part of the Acts 29 Network and the Southern Baptist Convention. So a little double whammy there. And at Entrench, I learned a lot of things that I no longer agree with. And those were things like living without limits. And by that, I mean this hustle in a really unhealthy way. Because the busier you are, the less time you have to question how harmful the system is, you know, like you're just so, you are just a cog in the machine and you don't even know it. And I also learned that spanking had to be part of how you quote, train your child before you even had children, that divorce is not an option. You have to homeschool, that there's a biblical defense to this belief that I was not my own. That was a huge one, right? You are not your own. So I was told that the author of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 explained, I was bought with a price, right? And so if I'm not my own, my body is not my own. And we could even look at 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and say, see here, it confirms that you have to give to your husband his conjugal rights, Mm -hmm. you know? And so if my body is not my own, you know, not even my time is my own. No part of my life was just for me. And we would be told over and over again by the pastor of the church, you know, that's what all these one another's are in scripture. We belong to one another. So I didn't belong to myself first and foremost. I belonged mm-hmm. to God, to my husband, and to my church, right? And I needed to accept all of that joyfully and willingly. And so in addition to grooming me for complementarianism and that complementarian theology, I see how the abuse of my childhood and adolescence groomed me to be this perfect candidate for believing that my body was not my own because I already didn't think I could exercise autonomy. And I just want to say like survivors of sexual assault and abuse do not need this message. We're not our own, right? We need to be empowered in safe relationships to establish boundaries and to practice those boundaries. So I want to just connect how this pattern of objectification really followed me for the first three decades of my life. First, it was this sexual objectification. And then as a young adult at this church, I was then treated as an object that existed to serve the church, even if I'm exhausted, right? There was no room for my humanity. And so sexual objectification that I experienced and then this objectification at the church may seem disconnected, but I see how they're very much related because this conditioning that excused and led to the acceptance of objectification in childhood contributed to this erosion of my autonomy and this groomed me to embrace the objectification and the spiritual abuse that came with it that I would experience later on from this pastor that I named Jake in the book. I experienced all that as normal and internalized it as love because it felt familiar. And so that's even where the whole book title comes from Mm -hmm. as familiar's family, you know, and if people know about the study with like the mice or something where it's like some are raised in a chaotic environment and some in this like calm, serene environment. And the ones who were raised in the chaotic environment will still go back to the chaotic environment, even if given the option to go to a different environment because the way their brains are wired and what they're conditioned to accept and that normal is for like, or what is familiar you think is normal. Right. And learning that just because something is familiar doesn't mean it's safe and right. how to make that distinction and trust myself in all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really profound how like, well, how, how the, just like your title says, like as familiar as family, you have all this trauma growing up and, and you're like seeking safety in these different places in this church 
seems like it's going to be safe for like the people who are supposed to take care of you are like good on the outside and then there's all this like corruption going on underneath but it takes a while to really see it for what it is and and in the book like you or well in your story obviously like you you do eventually see what's happening and you find your way out and then we'll like you know get there in a minute um i i'm curious like what can you tell us a little bit about what the process was like as you started to realize that there were like elements of spiritual abuse happening um within this church that you were a part of yeah yeah so i'll go back a little bit to say like yeah at first it felt like all the supposed gaps in my theology we're getting filled in at this church where I was learning so much every Sunday. I was taking notes. I love to learn. It felt like a seminary class, right? And from the beginning of my time at the church, I was wanted for what seemed like, you know, I didn't need to put a lot of effort into my extrovertedness, right? And so then from behind the pulpit, the pastor would say, and I say pulpit, it was a music stand because we rented this building. And so oh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't an actual pulpit, <laughs> but the pastor would praise all the extroverts and be like, oh, you make my job so much easier. So I don't have to make uncomfortable small talk. And so already from the beginning, I could, I can now look back and say, oh, that was some grooming there. Okay. Here's some, a way that I can use these people because I don't like to do this thing and they're good at it. I'm going to make them feel really special. And it's like the love bombing phase. If you look Mm -hmm. at uh, everything with narcissism, right. But of course I didn't know that at the time. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I feel so special, which is the point, Mm -hmm. right? You want to like, that's what they're doing. They're trying to make you feel special. And so I was vulnerable as a 19 year old, barely on the other side of what's supposed to be like adulthood, you know, this threshold, Mm -hmm. you know, turn 18. Now you're an adult. Right. And so there was this vibrant community at this church that really drew me in and under the leadership of this like semi-awkward yet somehow still charismatic pastor, I was just settling into his confidence, the pastor's confidence, trying to make it my own and like the sovereignty of God. And for a time I can say like I experienced sanctuary from uncertainty, from pain, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to point out my age because 19 is can be such a pliable age. And I wrote this in the book, you know, a pro tip for pastors. If you want to replicate your beliefs through an entire congregation, you just recruit a core team of impressionable people who want to please God and who believe that part of that means pleasing their pastor, Mm -hmm. right? And you get them on board with your ideology. And then you can, in a way, just sit back and watch as they do this work of proselytizing and discipling others into your image. And those zealots, you know, of which I was one, will weed out out all the unlikely so that you're left with just some of the most malleable people who will do your bidding. And I can see how an environment like that, this pastor becomes a hero and is untouchable in a lot of ways because the whole system was set up to protect them from the beginning. So, but before I uncovered all this, right, with the people of Entrench, I was finding these feelings of belonging. And for a decade, I was syncing my social calendar to the rhythms of the church. Uh And I just had something to do all the time at the church. And Jake, you know, who I, this pastor I call Jake, he told the congregation, don't miss a Sunday service, not even for vacation. Oh my and gosh. his reasoning was that if you go out of town on a Sunday, you're like, you're missing this time with us. So if you are going to go on vacation, plan it around church, you know, leave after church or on a Monday and come back on a Saturday. And he said, missing one Sunday every month even amounts to 12 Sundays a year. And that's the equivalent of three months of not gathering with the church body to hear the word of God taught, right? And 
of course, again, I didn't realize at the time just how high control that Mm. is, right? And manipulative. And so for 10 years, my life was completely wrapped up in this church. I adopted the theology of the pastor and his preferences. I served in almost every capacity, every Sunday, getting there early to set up, greeting, staying late to break down, serving in the kids area, hosting a small group in our home. And I had a community there, but really the church was my only community because that's all I really had time for. Didn't have time to invest in relationships outside of the church unless it was to try to get them saved and to come to the church. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And the congregation, you know, we heard often that we are a family, especially when volunteers were needed for the kids area. And so this mantra of we are a family, we are a family. And the pastor would say things like, you know, when you're a family, sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. I don't want to take out the garbage at home, but I do it. And so recently my husband and I have been talking about that and this line of reasoning, how dangerous it is to lay out this blanket statement that in families you have to do things you don't want to do when you consider the rates of domestic violence and assault of children, right, to that's so irresponsible to get up there as a pastor or any sort of leadership position to be like, in a family you have to do things you don't want to do, right, without any sort of caveats. But yeah, as the years went by, more and more I was feeling like, well, everyone else in the church is doing things we don't want to do. You know, he's saying you have to do things you don't want to do in a family. It's like, okay, well, we're doing that. Like, but it doesn't feel like you really are. Mm. And then I was directly spiritually abused by him after – not about nine and a half years at the church. And, you know, it's a lengthy story, but the short version is that when Steve and I met with him to talk about how women in the church were feeling, obviously not all women, but a, a good amount of us, he reacted very defensively. He made accusations against me of trying to quote, label him a sexist, which I was not doing. That wasn't even on my radar at that time. I was hoping like we can talk, we can figure out a way forward. That's going to allow the women in the church to feel valued. And that meeting was when it hit me that insurance wasn't rooted in mutuality, but rather in this hierarchy that defaulted to his preferences and his preferences took precedence, right? So while this pastor is preaching that, hey, we're supposed to count others more significant and we're supposed to look to the interests of others, it looked as if he was somehow absolved from that. And further, you know, he made every decision that was of any consequence at the church. And even when it looked like he was giving someone else some freedom so that they could not be micromanaged, really those people were floundering because they weren't really getting any support. And it just felt like from the people that I've talked to who were really struggling in their leadership roles, they felt like, well, he doesn't care enough to offer us additional support, or they felt like he doesn't really have the capacity to offer additional support, which he didn't because, Hey, living without limits. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah. And he was, he was, he was stretched so thin and it was just so irresponsible. And there were other problems too, but you know, I thought he just doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he's going to be willing to listen and change course, you know, very optimistic. And so I requested a follow-up meeting after that first meeting where I was spiritually abused. And by the time we had that follow-up meeting, though, that's when I had begun reading about narcissism and realized, hmm, he's displaying a lot of these characteristics Mm -hmm. as I've already seen him use the gaslighting technique and portray himself as the victim and evade accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you went into that second meeting a little more armed with knowledge about (laughs) narcissistic traits. Um, Would you say that that helped you like keep your center a little bit better or like, like have more awareness maybe of what dynamic Mm -hmm. that he was portraying in the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, do you want me to go ahead and like talk about those six months between and kind of what prepared me to leave the church? Like I can go ahead yeah, and go into that. Yeah. yeah. Because there were six months between the first time I was spiritually abused by this, you know, quote, lead elder and the next time, and that was the last time. And, you know, a little side note, that's not to say that there weren't a lot of spiritually abusive practices in the church, mm-hmm. right? Um, before that first time I was directly spiritually abused or between even those two instances. But a lot happened in that six months that prepared me for this decision to leave the church, even though I naively held out hope. I'm talking like to the last minute, even when, even mm-hmm. when I had all that knowledge of, oh, wow, he's displaying these things. Yeah. Just my optimism and my hope to think like, oh, he's going to admit his wrongdoing and repair our relationship. And yeah. so one of my closest friends, she had left the church before I did and before uh, my family did. So when I was directly spiritually abused, she was the person that I felt the safest talking to. And since she was no longer at the church, she wouldn't be invested in protecting the church from critique. Okay. Right. And so I knew, okay, well, I can talk with her about what's happened and I don't have to fear her not believing me. So another side note, I, I say it's a red flag. If you are even worried that right. people still at the church, aren't going to believe you about your pastor spiritually abusing you. But, you know, mm-hmm. I got to her house that day after it happened that first time. And I was just unloading this play by play. And I just want to say she hugged me and she provided the sanctuary that I needed to process what had happened to me and what I experienced. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people don't get that when they've had an experience like this, but I think that was already the first step towards me leaving the church was being believed by someone, right? Because she told me these impactful words that I say, anyone who's traumatized would need to hear, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. I believe you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm team Nikki. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just really clung to those words over those next six months. So both my friend and my partner, Steven, my husband, Steven, as well as a small group of other friends really held space for that trauma. As I saw, you know, Steven was prioritizing me and advocating for me in all that was happening. And these acts of care were in direct opposition to what I was experiencing from the pastor. Mm -hmm. And so having this group of committed friends and Steven alongside of me as I left the church ended up just being such a gift. And I don't know if I would have been able to do it without them, you know, a a network. So, yeah, and a few months after that first time being spiritually abused, Steven and I visited another church. So this was kind of like another little step away from the church before officially leaving. Uh, And so, yeah, we visited this church and it was just this different experience. I mean, we walked out of that building. I felt like this lightness in my body that was so different from how weighed down and heavy I'd been feeling leaving our other church. And it was similar to what a friend of mine, the one who I went and talked to the day after everything happened, she had gone to a new church. And so she would tell me about what she felt in her body after that. I was like, oh, wow, this is similar to what she was saying. And so as the months went by, there was no follow-up meeting. You know, we're not a big church, but, you know, and, and supposedly my husband and I were really, um, supposed to be really important members. So you would think mm-hmm. there'd be some sort of urgency to meet with us, but you know, find the time. Yeah. Just months going by, you know? So I decided, okay, well, I'm not going to attend the services at all. So I'd already been sitting at the back of the church on the floor, right? Like that was my, that was a, another little like, Hmm, as long as things aren't right between us, it's so painful to look at this person who is not mm. living out and embodying what they're preaching, right? So that was one aspect of it. And so, yeah, so then I was like, well, I'm not going to go at all because until this pastor has decided that 
he's going to acknowledge there's a problem between us and work to repair our relationship. I am not going to continue showing up at the church and communicating with my presence that things are fine between us. You can treat me however you want to, and I'm still going to show up, right? So I decided to check out a service at the church that my friend was going to, and again, felt in my body what I felt at that other church that Stephen and I had visited. And so by the time we actually left the church officially, I could look back and notice, oh, I've been leaving in stages, right? From sitting on the floor to visiting another church to not attending, you know, to then committing to this other church until I can meet with the pastor and sort things out. Again, I was not thinking we're officially going to leave. I was thinking Uh until things are, until things are right between us, you know, like I really thought there was an until. Yes. Yeah. And so. I really, really did think we're going to clear everything up. He's going to acknowledge the harm and we're going to heal together. But that is not what happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And so from the time I left the church, I was adamant that what I had experienced was spiritual abuse. And so I want to read this from KJ Ramsey because it really helped me put words to what I went through at the church that I was a part of. She said, I find it incredibly important to introduce the term spiritual abuse so we can see and name rightly what happens to our whole selves and systems that treat people more like products or objects than people. If you can name rightly the wound, you can tend it well. Abuse in general, I believe, is any diminishment of personhood that happens in relationship. So, you know, she's talking about naming the spiritual abuse you've experienced so you can heal. And that step certainly helped me process what I had been through and to begin healing. And so much of what she shared in this podcast episode that she was on, I listened to her on the Church Hurts podcast it was just resonating with me because Stephen and I were punished in a lot of ways for making the decision that prioritized our family and the health of our family, Mm -hmm. because we were just seeing how submitting to church leaders who, whether intentionally or not, push members to the brink of exhaustion and still fear about losing community. If you step out of line, you know, you're going to lose your family who fire you as retaliation, but don't even communicate that decision to you. Right. And that happened to my husband because he'd been the bookkeeper Uh at the church and then was terminated without any conversation about it. Uh Right. (laughs) Who uh, prop up this power dynamic that lacks accountability and then demand loyalty to the church as a family at the expense of honoring the humanity of those that they claim our family, like all of that is part of being spiritually abused, right? And all of those things happen to us and are happening to people every day. And I want to say it's okay to leave, right? It really is. You're allowed to leave. You're allowed to leave anywhere, even a church. And to just really sit with knowing like you're going to be okay. There are people who will be with you. And, you know, and I don't say any of this to shame church leaders or because I'm like, I dislike churches, you know, no, like I love the people who make up these churches, right? I just want to witness the flourishing of each of those people. And I say like, there's this better way and I'm on a journey to finding it. I don't have all the answers, but I know that's not it. Right. And so for the past few years, I've made a practice of publicly marking my departure from the church in some way to honor myself and to honor my story and experience. So first I wrote a blog post and in the post I was addressing, Hey, I've heard all these rumors through the grapevine about why we left the church. And oh my goodness, there was speculation that it was because of disagreement over social justice issues or gender roles or theological interpretations. There was also, Oh, well, they just didn't give things enough time or, you know, they just had certain preferences that weren't being met. And so it's like, I'm not saying any of those 
aren't a valid reason for leaving church. They just aren't why we left, you know? And so mm-hmm. I wrote this blog post where I was like, those are not the reasons, you know, and yeah. shut that speculation down. Then uh, a year after the blog post, which is two years after leaving the church, I did a podcast episode on my podcast where I talked about being spiritually abused at this church. And I can see how facilitating, how that facilitated my healing to be able to take control back of the narrative again and really publicly in an even more forceful way than I'd done with the blog post. Because in the in the podcast episode, I named the church, whereas in the Ooh, blog post, mm-hmm. I did not. So a year later, I was ready to like, well, let's name the people. And so all these people reached out to me after that. People who I thought had left the church on good terms, I found out they were either, you know, clandestinely excommunicated mm-hmm. or, you know, told that don't don't tell anyone why you're leaving or damaged in some way. And so you know, then I wrote a book about it, you know, almost uh-huh. a year and a half after that. You know, so there are all these stages to to telling my story. And it's like, you know, I don't know what's next for my story, but having a voice is so empowering, right? And it's like nothing's going to prevent me from telling my story. And so I'll wrap this part up quickly. But stepping away from organized religion, I can see how that allowed me to spend time with myself without rushing mm-hmm. to the next event at church. Right. And I can say like, I really like myself now, whereas before I never would have said that, you know, Mm -hmm. and getting to know myself and learning different embodiment exercises, because in my experience, so much disembodiment happens when you're told like your body is evil and put the, you know, body to death and all those things. So now these embodiment exercises are, these embodiment exercises are facilitating my healing. Right. And I'm now prioritizing non-negotiables. So things like 30 minutes of breathing a day to just be alone and in solitude and it's getting warmer here. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I want to do that in my hammock again. Right. Mm-hmm. And a, a daily walk around the neighborhood and reading and writing and playing with my kids and setting aside time on the weekends to do things that I want to do right with the kids. And so from this place of peace, I can say, you know, I am this woman who does open mics on IG lives, which I wouldn't have done before, right? Who got a tattoo, who joined a writing group, who launched a podcast, built a fire pit, like in our backyard by myself, almost my neighbor helped me uh, dig the hole a little bit that I needed to, cause that was getting hard. <laughs> you know, I painted kitchen cabinets. I self-published my own book, right? I got my nose pierced, like all these things that it was like, I wanted to do those things. And so I want to quote Dr. Christina Cleveland from her book, God is a Black Woman. You know, I look back on my time at that church and in like this patriarchal context, even in my family, you know, she writes in her book, if you want to avoid being shamed and excommunicated, you do whatever white male God's minion is telling you to do without ever asking yourself, do I want to do this? Mm -hmm. So when I think about my healing journey, that has been one of my guiding questions is, do I want to do this? And letting that inform the decisions that I make. Yeah. I really like that quote. And it goes so countercultural to what we are taught, like in so many churches or evangelical churches where you're just like sacrifice. Like you were saying, we're a family. We sacrifice everything for the, the good of the church because it's the good of the gospel and we're saving souls. Mm-hmm. But like that also creates a lot of a uh, lot of room for like pastors who may have narcissistic tendencies who want to come in and also see an opportunity for things to be shaped their way. And and I don't even know if they do that consciously. 
but they like believe so strongly perhaps in the rightness of their own ideas and then become unable to hear what anyone else has to say and when that's backed up by theology that literally says like well women should submit to men anyway Mm. you guys probably have the best ideas it's just like there's just a whole lot of power issues there that are going on yeah and I think just like the pride inherent in that but then like you said then they have the bible to back it up so they're like but it's not prideful because God says (laughs) because God said so so I'm right yeah yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that, like, while you were at the church, you were also bumping up against all these other ideas, like the complementarian theology. And, and in your book, you talk more at length about, like, how you're trying to integrate more social justice and, like, anti-racist stuff, um, which were, which are, like, all totally valid things on their own. But it was the spiritual abuse specifically, where you're like, whoa, hold on, we, we can't do this. Um, like to to be presenting all these ideas and to have a pastor like I, almost feels like intentionally misinterpret what you're trying to say and what you were trying to do and like mm-hmm. to take it as him being the victim for you trying to bring fresh and you know healthy ideas into a space yeah when it yeah because it's interesting he didn't seem to have the same visceral reaction when talking about racial justice issues, he seemed open to that, you know, so we would talk about those things with him and it seemed like the church was going to maybe go in that direction. And so that was why I decided to talk with him about like, and again, I didn't, I didn't even really call it patriarchy. You know, it was yeah. just like, here's how the women in the church are feeling. And there's just like complete discounting of that. And then I'd known him for 10 years and had a, what I thought was a mutual friendship yeah. and respect within that. And so to then have him throw out accusations at me, it's like, I don't even know why you would think that about me, you know? And so that was what really shook me because it seemed that at least when it came to racism, he was open to those things and we could talk about those things, maybe get somewhere. But when it became this attack on my very character and this Mm -hmm. idea, like ascribing things to me that are just, that felt so out of left field, that that was kind of what was this aha like something more is going on here that this Mm -hmm. is what he's getting defensive about and what ignited him to be more direct in his spiritual abuse yeah I mean it kind of seems like a bit of the narcissist's downfall or Achilles heel that they're like we might go in thinking we're just having a conversation about issues they personalize it and they think Mm -hmm. that you are like attacking their very you know core being because they they like can't handle the idea that you might fundamentally disagree with them and think that they're wrong and and it just becomes so personalized and then they start to lash out in these much more harsh ways but then it like it shows you who they are mm-hmm. you're like oh i see everything a little more clearly now thank you maybe for reacting that way so i could see what's happening mm-hmm. here that's true yeah when he acted that way and then again 6 months later it then gave me this new lens to look back on 10 years of interactions. Yeah. 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 And everything kind of like started clicking into place mm-hmm. for you and you could see it all differently yeah. with your, your, your hindsight view, I guess. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, I know that you, you had mentioned, you know, in terms of if you have words of wisdom or thoughts, 
for our listeners, you you did mention something earlier about like don't be afraid to leave a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard often to identify it as actually being abusive, like when you don't have all the language or when you're like, but they really care about me or like I'm really invested here. So I'm also acknowledging, you know, that that is a really difficult element. But I know you've done a lot of thinking, obviously, about this subject. Do you have kind of words of wisdom that you would like to share? Yeah, I pulled this basically straight from my book because I thought it went really well with this question. So I'm going to briefly say something to three different groups of people and then something that I think is applicable to everyone in a church context where there's spiritual and narcissistic abuse. So first, like if you've been spiritually abused by a pastor or church leader, I want to do for you what my friend did for me and remind you that you didn't do anything wrong and you didn't deserve that abuse, right? So my invitation to you, if you're in this group of people, is to surround yourself with people who are committed to your flourishing and to get the help you need to remove yourself from that situation. And I also invite you to tell your story, right? You don't have to do it on a blog post, a book, a podcast, right? In these ways that I have, but there is this power in vocalizing what you experienced with people who have earned your trust and who you can be authentic with about your experience. Cause I'll say when I went to therapy and I told my therapist what happened, she's this outside person, but having her say, Oh wow. It was so validating. Right. And so that's, that's to that group. Second, if you're someone who has maintained an abusive system in some way, forsake that short-sighted self-preservation and realize that there's no playing the long game in these kind of situations, which is something that one of the church leaders said at the church that I was spiritually abused at. He was playing the long game, right? And so it's like, you know, there's problems. And I had a friend who said when she heard that this guy had said playing the long game, she's like, but you're not even in the game. You're on the bench, right? Like (laughs) the narcissistic leader doesn't, you don't actually have any sort of power to be playing the long game here, right? And I want to say, look at how many people have been broken in the name of your long game, right? What has that accomplished? Uh, Yeah. And so a trained counselor, I would say, is the only one who should be playing the long game with this church leader who is abusing church members. And so my invitation to those people who are maintaining this system is confess your complicity, be healed, right? And help others be healed. And also, I want to say, you can be someone who's maintaining or helping maintain an abusive system and be someone who's being spiritually abused, right? Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind as you heal, like the holding both of those, because I maintain, I helped maintain that system for 10 years and was also directly harmed by it, right? And the yeah. third is if you are a pastor or someone with authority and you've been told that you have damaged a relationship with a church member, you have to realize that the system isn't actually benefiting you, like not mm-hmm. really, Right. Because people are intimidated by you. So they aren't questioning you. But the system that you've created or are maintaining is bent on destroying you, too. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this goes for any hierarchical structure. And I think even this language in the church I was a part of, of like lead elder or lead pastor and first among equals is denoting this way of. being that sets up a hierarchy, right? Like all these little nomenclatures shed light on this unhealthy extra biblical hierarchy. And so my invitation to you is to see that you've got to take responsibility for the people you've harmed. And that's not me saying like, you're this horrible, terrible person, you know, like I see your humanity and I value that. And also 
Take responsibility for how you've harmed people. Confess that wrongdoing and do whatever the people harmed say is necessary to repair the damage that's done. And finally, on a more general note, is that whoever you are, wherever you are, right, live into the fullness of who you are and nurture authentic community with people who will help you live into the fullness of who you are. And the little caveat here, right, is like, unless you're racist, misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic, or narcissistic in that case, right, get get help so that you can live from your truest self. Heal those places. There's There are reasons that those things are coming up for you and you're, you're acting in, from those, those places. So heal, grow in self-awareness. Find tools for me, therapy and the Enneagram were game changers. So find tools that work for you so that we can stop all of this harming and being harmed and these systems that, like I said, aren't actually benefiting anyone in the long run. There might be short term and a very short sighted self-preservation that's happening that seems to be offering protection. But again, it's bent on destroying all of us. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah solid words (laughs) i am just really glad like for you but also for now like the wisdom that you get to share of how much of the healing process that you have been able to go through i mean because coming from some very traumatized places meeting a traumatizing church environment and like Mm -hmm. finding your way through all of that and then i know for me like when i write out my story it really helps me process Mm -hmm. um you know, like my own pain and figure out a lot of things. Um, And I'm just really glad that you've done that and that you came here today to share a little bit with us. Um, Would you mind telling us like where we can find you? What are the best places to follow you? Yes. Okay. So I'm most active on Instagram and that would be at broadening the narrative, broadening the narrative being the name of my podcast. So broadening the narrative on Instagram. I have a Twitter at broad narrative because, you know, it has to be shorter (laughs) and and there's a Facebook group as well for broadening the narrative. And I love to connect with people and hear their stories. And so I appreciate you holding space for my story, both in reading my book and talking with me today and just, yeah, thank you. Yay. And I'll include links in the, in the episode show notes and everything where everyone can find you. All right. Thank you so much, Nikki. Thank you.